I didn't doubt that I would. I just didn't know how I would live independently one day. But then again, I kind of like not knowing how I'll end up doing something and just try to do it because I, it's never about the end. It's always about the journey. It was at the point that I decided that I had to learn how to play guitar again with my hooks. That was going to get me over the how upset I was about not being able to play music. I'm going to work that out one way or another. I like to have something to look forward to in my head, whether it be something that I really want to do one day or something I want to achieve or some place I want to go or whatever it is. I like to have something to look forward to. And I think what I did in my own head when I, when I was in that position of losing my arms was I, I decided that I wanted to work out a way to play guitar. I did, had no fucking idea how I was going to do that, but I knew that I was going to give it a shot. And that gave me enough hope to be like, all right, let's get this show on the road. That is DJ, party promoter and quadruple amputee, Tom Nash. And this is Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and thank you so much for being here. This is episode 314 of this podcast with Tom Nash, also known as DJ Hookie. You can find him on Twitter at DJ Hookie, H-O-O-K-I-E. If you're new, if this is your first show, thank you for listening. There's a lot of podcasts out there. There's nearly like three quarters of a million podcasts, and this is one of them. Um, we've been going for about mm, six and a half years, and basically this show just hopes to help you make today better than yesterday. Something you'll hear in this show will make you go, oh, oh that's different. Didn't think about it that way. And then, you know, today feels better than yesterday. That's it. That's all we try to do. And so far, it's working out pretty well. So if you do need me, if you want to get in touch, if you want to respond to anything you hear, send Osher email at gmail.com. I... Um, have an Instagram, but I don't check it. Someone checks it for me and they let me know, hey, this person's got this. But yeah, that's how you can uh, get in touch with me if you want to you want to chat. I hope you are okay wherever you are in the world. I know people listen from all over the planet, but in Australia, there is a, a, fairly, um, a fairly intense crisis going on as far as bushfires are concerned. I think you call them wildfires or forest fires in North America. A huge amount of New South Wales, the state where Sydney is, is on fire right now. A huge amount is on fire. We had ash falling into the backyard of our house the other day, and we are probably 40 or 50 k's away from where the fires are. So, yeah, it's big, and it sucks. But maybe this is what it'll take for people to realise that this is the weather now, things have changed, and we need to live with it and figure out ways to manage how it is now. Climate change isn't something that is happening in the distant future. Climate change is happening right now. It's happening today. It's destroying houses and devastating our country today. And that's it. Any government, any government, local, state, federal, that isn't working day and night right now to implement urgent policy that shifts our nation away from fossil fuels, invests heavily in carbon sequestration, works to protect our water supply and our food supply and creates protections both physical and legal for vulnerable coastal communities and adequately funds the fire service, any government isn't doing that, 
does not deserve your vote. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. Our economy can thrive still from all of this work. Our economy can thrive on alternate energy sources. And anyone that tells you otherwise has not seen the projections and has not seen the science and has not seen the modelling that has been done for years now, but proves indeed that it is a better pathway. Sooner or later, the world won't want coal. And we can either get fat off developing the tech and solutions that will help the world live with the new weather patterns, or we can spend our retirement money buying it from others. No policy is no policy. The time for action is right now. I don't care who you vote for, but if they are not actively implementing significant climate change policy, then they are not acting with your interests at heart. And that's the end of the story. There's nothing else to say about that. There's nothing else to say, except that you can help. I don't know the first thing about fighting fires. I would just get in the way, but I know that I can help those who can help. So I would recommend if you would like to do something right now, you can donate to the Rural Fire Service in New South Wales, www.rfs.nsw.gov.au. They are volunteers. A large amount of the infrastructure is provided for them uh, through funding, but, well, mega funding, unfortunately, um, but largely stuffed by volunteers and they need your support because people are working flat out. And the projections are that Australia will burn like this until March. Yeah. So these people are going to need you. They're really going to need you. rfs.nsw.gov.au. And as well, as always, I know I talk about them a lot, but they do very, very good work. The Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal, frrr.org.au. And um, brilliantly... Uh, I only just found this out because I went on the website to, to have a look. Former podcast guest Jeff Wilson, if you remember when he was on the show, he, he talked about his um, asset management fund. Wilson Asset Management is matching donations to the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal, frrr.org.au, is matching donations uh, up to a million dollars. So, Jeff, you're a legend. And um, that's how you can help. That's how you can feel like you've, you've, you've contributed to salute you know, helping the people that really need us uh, today. Thank you very much as always to everybody that sent in a picture of where they're listening to the show. Always get a kick out of that. Send us your email at gmail.com. They do come in from all over the planet. So I'm very happy about that. It's just nice. It makes me feel connected to you and hopefully you're connected to me and here we are together. And, and thank you as well for the ratings and reviews on the iTunes store. They do help us immensely. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So, let me tell you about my guest today. Tom Nash, also known as DJ Hookie, is a DJ. He's a very successful promoter. He's a speaker. And he is a quadruple amputee from Sydney, Australia. At 19, Tom contracted severe meningococcal septicemia, which put him in a coma for three weeks and caused the amputation of both his arms and legs. Tom is a shining light of a human. He was heavily involved in the Sydney party scene around when I was most definitely heavily involved in the Sydney party scene and most definitely out and about. And I'd bump into him all the time and always fascinated with watching him be able to light a cigarette with his articulated prosthetic limbs, which you guess it have pincers and hooks on the end of them to allow him to reach for things and, and grab for things. He's a truly inspirational human. I'll, I'll let him tell you the story, but don't be surprised if you take a long, hard look at your own life after listening to this man describe the joy and possibility available in life, even after something as traumatic as what happened to him can happen. Tom's a truly inspirational man. I'm super grateful he took the time to come and visit my house a little while ago. It is a little little while back that we recorded this. It was actually before Wolfgang was born. So there's a few interesting perspectives. I actually left it in. There's, we talk about expecting a baby because Audrey was still pregnant. And so I left it all in because it's interesting to listen to it back. So I hope you didn't get a kick out of that because I did. If you like what you hear, you can find him on Twitter at DJ Hookie, D-J-H-O-O-K-I-E. Let him know you heard him here. Enjoy this conversation with Tom Nash. Well, thanks for coming around, Tom. Thank you for having me. Good to have you here, man. Yeah, it's so, uh, very strange that we've found ourselves here. I mean, I haven't seen you in like over 10 years. Easily. And easily, I was, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think the only times I ever saw you, I was pretty smashed. Yeah, it was, so I was, was I. A, we, was, we were always yeah. out. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You would enter, I think maybe, uh, I think at the time before um, Starfuckers, before Club 77, you would come down to the pedestrian nights that I used to help put on at Candy's apartment. That and, sounds right. Yeah, and you used to come down with um, some vaguely attractive young lady and then you'd stand in the corner and smile at everyone for about half an hour and then leave. Oh, you're that talking about your... my friend Mel. Oh, uh, maybe. No, it was uh, you came down with different people all the time. Oh, yeah, those days. But they're, <laughs> they're, always, they're always fairly attractive people. Yeah, it was a different time in my life, mate. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> But you are describing what I do in nightclubs very well. Yeah, that yeah. Is but, I, you, but you were quite, I mean, you know, notwithstanding, you were quite the socialite. I mean, you would have sort of things on each night, right? You would, yeah. you would go to several things each night. And Yeah, but I Make would. Make appearances. I would definitely, I was definitely a stand in the corner and I still am a stand in the corner kind you of still guy. Are? Oh, do you yeah. just stand in the corner if, you, if it's like a family event? Do you do that? Yep. That's creepy. Yeah, do I do at the baby shower. <laughs> we had a baby shower the other day. Oh, that's fine to stand in the corner. Because you're a guy. 
But what are you going to do at a baby shower? Well, I was in a room with, I don't know, 80 friends and family who love me, love my wife, love yeah. us, have nothing but love for us and I know all of them. Yeah. And I was still <laughs> super confronted by the amount of interaction. Oh, okay, right. You know, so it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. super confronting. Right. I just have to... <gasps> Take a breath and whew, like ju- like jumping into the iceberg pool yeah. in, the, in the winter time. I just have to you just have to go. Yeah. So in hi, how are you? Good to have you here. You know. So I was like, fuck, I can't do that thing today. Everyone's come here for this. I've got to go in there. Okay. Yeah. So you got to so, will yourself into it. Yeah, but it's always easier when you when I do. Mm. But yeah, back then I would just drink shot, shots of agua and um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the new version of that. Yeah. Um, what's the? Can you tell me what is involved in a baby shower? Because I've never been to one. Um, usually it's ladies only. Usually it's um, yeah because men don't want to go to them. Perhaps usually it's ladies only. It's a celebration uh, among the mother to be, her friends. Mm. Usually because of the way that life works, people who have recently had kids or are Mm. also pregnant um, are there and there's usually some sort of games and, you know. Okay. Yeah, there's baby changing competitions. Yeah, and and they give them gifts that are for the baby, right? Precisely. It's like a housewarming but for a baby. Yeah, okay. Which is, is a really lovely way for, you know, if people want to help a new family, mm. um, not that we're a new family, we have a kid, but a new baby, if they want to help out with a new baby, they might not be able to be there, but they might be able to get, and what was really handy, they go, you know what, when we had our kid, this particular thing, mm. whether this particular bottle or this particular, we tried heaps, this was the one. We yeah. wanted you to have one as well because it just saved us heaps of time. Go right. For it. So the there's an apartment of knowledge as well. as Precisely. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, it's, and it's really nice. Does that apartment of knowledge get a bit annoying after a while? Like do people, because I feel like, Sometimes when people have kids, they can become a little bit didactic. And I feel like if you're having a kid, it's almost like I would imagine people would approach you and be like, you know, giving you advice on almost everything. Does that sort of take its toll off? Oh, yeah. Lot? My friend Heggy, uh, who's a stand-up, he used to make it. His kids are older now, but earlier he goes, you know the best thing about having kids? Just fucking strangers come up and telling you how to raise them. Yeah. I never have to read yeah. any books at all. <laughs> 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 I'm, well, sure exactly. I'm sure it's the same as, you know, when people are freshly vegan and then, or yeah. they've just joined Hillsong or whatever. Yeah. They're just like, oh, let me tell you about this thing, you know, because, you know, they're in that phase of everything's amazing and I want to share this. I want to yeah, share this yeah. knowledge and, I, and they don't realise that they may be coming across as, you know, mm. maybe the person listening doesn't exactly want to hear it. <laughs> you know, they might not. But for them, they're just evangelical about, oh, no, I have kale smoothies and it's incredible. My colon's so clean. And, you know. Are you, are you vegan? I yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you Hillsong? No, <laughs> no, no. But I look. I was vegan since like like 2002. I went vegan. Oh really? It's, yeah, like before. That's a while. Before you could take photos of it and tell people that you were. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay. Yeah. Um, and I actually, you know, I I tend to avoid any kind of activism or anything around it because I can't bear the race to purity among that because it's an impossible ask. You know, yeah. any kind of fundamentalism, I can't bear. Mm. You know, the idea that everyone has to be vegan, bro. It's, like it's not going to happen mm. culturally. Mm. It won't. Mm. How are you going to tell someone who lives in Finland who has eaten whale meat for 3,000 years that they can't? Yeah. You know, it's their culture. Yeah, that's What true. are you going to do? You know, can we maybe cut down on the way manufactured meat is created? Probably. What about, you know, factory farming for pigs and chickens? Probably not a great environmental thing. Can we find alternatives? Yeah, maybe. You know, but as far as not eating any meat at all, let's be realistic, team. Sure. Have you tried the Beyond Burger? I have. Oh, super Is it weird. good? 
I haven't tried it yet. Dude, it's so weird. Mm. Yeah, I was a bit weirded out the first time I ate it. it weird in the way that it, it was like accurate? It tastes really? so much like meat. Wow. Yeah. It tastes so much like meat. That's crazy. Because they put the they put heme into it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that the heme? I thought yeah. I thought that was the other one, um, the Memphis meats. Might be the same thing. But that's the, that's the secret sauce okay, right, for that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Crazy. I've had it. A few, I've had it a few times, but it's, mm. it's pretty weird. But I get like if you were looking to transition. I mean, you know, we're not here to talk about meat production. Oh, we could. We could do a whole time about meat production <laughs> if you wanted. I'm not too educated on it, so oh, I don't well, know how good look, the interview. You know, we're basically, uh, in the words of, there's this great book called Factfulness by a guy called Hans Rosling. Mm. You know, when you look at how many billions of people are emerging into affluent social economic status that we in Australia have enjoyed for hundreds of years. But there are billions of people coming up into that place. And you look at how how many resources, how much resource it takes for us to live this life that we live with Mm. the energy, with the food production and stuff like that. It's utterly unsustainable. Mm. And these people who are coming into this socioeconomic space have every single right to, and we want them to, because people who are, you know, that's peaceful, right? Mm. It's a peaceful world. When you've got your television and you've got your couch and you've got food in the fridge, yeah, everything's pretty cool. You might say some angry shit on the internet, but everything's pretty cool, yeah, all yeah. right? You might get into the comments yeah, section you're not going to kill someone for food, you know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But we have to figure out a way to live the way we live sustainably so that as these millions and billions of people in the next 50 years come into this space that we have now, we mm. enjoy, as they rightly should, that it is sustainable for them to do so. And so the amount of energy and resources and waste that gets produced in meat production, is it just won't work. Mm. So we have to figure out something else to do. And places like Beyond Meat are, are coming up with something kind of interesting around that. They are, yeah. I, I find that really interesting. Yeah. You recently had Jonathan Haidt on the I fucking podcast, did. didn't you? I was stoked. I'm a, I'm a really big fan of his. I used to, I've watched a lot of his stuff and read a few articles things that he's written is quite interesting yeah i noticed when i i checked out your podcast you'd had him it was fairly recently wasn't yeah, it, it was, yeah it was yeah and it was what i love finding podcast guests is sometimes really quite tough mm. and i won't say his name but like there's some authors who are very rock star and yeah you know this that and the other and really hard to get to and you've got to jump through publicist hoops to get them on and yeah. and then and then it's months of, you know, trying to coordinate a time when it'll work. Yeah, right. And then there's Jonathan Haidt who's written, I don't know, five New York Times bestsellers and has yeah. a public-facing email address at NYU yeah. and emailed me back within a day. Yeah, Fantastic. man, I'd love to come on your show. That's amazing. <laughs> and the guy couldn't be more – he could not be more powerful. You know, he's yeah, extraordinarily yeah, yeah. academically – Powerful, loud, active voice. Yeah, you know he he regularly goes does three hours with Rogan at a time. Like mm. the guys, like and he just yeah, yeah. it's like yeah, man, I'd love to. And we had we made it happen within you know four or five weeks. Yeah, I mean, I guess some people care more about their message than their ego or their others. sales. Maybe. I don't know. Could be, yeah. If it's your first book, you'd be really concerned with but sales. But then again, I mean, yeah, that's true. I mean, but you're talking about once a person gets to the point where they have to sell large units of books, they would probably have a strategist on board or a publicist who who would say, like, let's be a bit more sparse in our PR. Yeah. But he just seems to be – you didn't go through an intermediary. You just sort of went straight to him and he was like, let's talk about it. Uh, He did and – but I guess I did – sorry, I did fail to mention that he did have an Australian tour. um, Yeah, he did. I saw that. uh, Coming up in November. And mm. so tickets were going on sale. It was fortuitous that the tickets were going on sale yeah. within a couple of weeks. I, I uh, know how we can test this. I'll just invite him out for a coffee and see if he does that. He might. <laughs> 
He's fascinating by would. The I think what he has to say, he's not necessarily spouting any brand new theories. He's just basically <clears throat> holding a mirror up to coddling yeah. and how completely dangerous it is. The enormous spike that we've seen in uh, mental health issues since yeah. social media has been vastly used yeah, by young yeah. people. And basically helping understand the call-out culture, helping understand what led to the point scoring around that. And it kind of helped me unpack a lot of stuff that I do struggle with as someone who has interactions with random members of the public quite Mm. often, particularly around hot-button topics like marriage equality and vaccines, Mm. to try and understand a lot more. All right, that's why that person's being this way. Okay. All right. Well, that's why I'm being this way. Mm. Okay. Am I virtue signaling here? Yeah, I probably am. Am I calling someone out so I can score points? Maybe. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. I I really found, you know, quite fascinating. I think he's got a very, really important thing to say between him and Roger McNamee, who wrote the book Zucked about- Oh, I've heard about this book. Oh, yeah, dude. I have not read it. I confess. Well, if you like having Facebook products on your phone, don't read it. I'm not sure that I like it. I think it's to some extent necessary, but yeah. <laughs> what price do we pay? Yeah, I think right, what, I, what I hear the other day that that phone is it's essentially a poker machine in your pocket. Mm. It is designed using the same psychological tricks and traps that poker machines are designed. Oh, with, absolutely. There's with, no doubt about it. Yeah. With the variable rewards and the flashes and the lights and the habit yeah. loops and the the reward. Well, loops. It's, it's an exercise in uh, you know maintaining one's attention precisely. So, yeah, it sort of it would divulge into those kinds of tactics whether it was intentional or not. I guess. Yeah. yeah. And so I just noticed that I was disappearing from my life. And life or wife? Everything. Like both. Oh, yeah. Life, wife, yeah. I would sit here yeah. and just not be intentional and just be like whole days would go by and I couldn't remember a conversation I had because I was constantly in Instagram. Right. I'm like, okay, it's gone now. It's off yeah. my phone now. So it's Facebook, so it's mm. Twitter, none of them on my So phone do you think anymore. that that combined with an addictive personality is what, what, what happened in your oh, scenario yeah. Or, or, yeah. or would you think this might be symptomatic of anyone? I think it might be symptomatic of anyone, for sure, particularly the way I see it play out in young people, the way that I see young people and particularly the use of Snapchat. They're very clever in the way that they have structured themselves within the social fabric and social structure of how people organise their lives and their social networks. Mm of friendships. Yeah, they've got these little things that you have to check in every goddamn day, sometimes more than that. Mm. And if you don't, then, you know, it's literally, it's a ranking system. If you have, you know, if you let one day pass, then you're no longer a good friend, mm. which is not the case, but right. it's led, yeah, it's, it's and sure. it's, it's. I think there's also a, an interesting two-pronged effect that social media and internet has on, on people's minds in that it, it sort of procures this short attention span. Mm. You know, and because there's so much content all the time, you operate with more discretion as to what you're going to like. For instance, if I want to watch a YouTube video and I search for a particular thing and then I see a a variety of options that come up, I'll go for the short one because I'm not going to waste my time with something that could be explained in a shorter period of time. Now, if you take that sort of short attention span that's, that's almost being curated in the minds of the public and then you take the added ability to fill in almost any small piece of time or the need to fill in any small piece of time, whether you be on a bus or, you know, waiting for someone to enter a meeting and you're able to just open an app and just fill that time up with consumption of media which operates in the smallest possible fashion and then you're constantly doing something all the time. Your mind is never really truly present in the moment. 
And so, I mean, I, I remember I used to have far more experiences as an adolescent growing up and even in my early 20s when you didn't have that to grab your attention away and you might sit somewhere and you had time to think and contemplate things. And now you kind of don't because as soon as you're idle, it's just, sorry, that wasn't a pun. Um, no, you fine. just go <laughs> through the Instagram or something like that. Yeah. And then you, you lose that, that contemplative moment, you know, or, or the opportunity for it at least. And what does that do for our imagination, for our creativity, for our ability to process? Because it is in those quiet moments that we go, oh, oh, that's what that person meant in that meeting. Yeah. Oh, shit. Okay. Mm. All right. I better go do something about that. Mm. We never have those moments. That's We're true. We're full. We're bookended from back to back from morning till night. Yeah, that's right. And I've actually found a, an interesting way to combat that mm. because I do find myself filling in those gaps with meaningless crap. I think everyone does to a certain extent. I find that you can attain that contemplative reflection by writing. And it doesn't matter whether you're a good writer or not. But if you are able to even document in the most matter-of-fact way something that you did that day or something that happened to you, it allows you the time to process it and to think about it. You know how they often say that the best way to learn something is to teach it? It's kind of like that. You're almost writing, even if you're writing for yourself or an audience or whatever it is, that taking that moment to sit back and think about what just happened and writing it out, even if there's no introspection in it, you often fall into introspection, like accidentally. Mm. And so one of the things that I do when I, when I travel is I keep a travel diary. I've been doing it for the last few years. And the only way to achieve it properly is to do it stringently every day and you have to sort of set aside time. And often I'll set aside an hour or more to sit there and write what happened yesterday. And the difference that I noticed was not only did I remember more things that I did, but I thought more about what I did and what that meant. And I think if you apply that to your day-to-day life, now I'm obviously not suggesting everyone go and take an hour out of their day to do it. That would be ridiculous. Um, But even if you did it at the end of a week or something and you sort of think to yourself, what happened that week? Uh, What was important? What stood out about it? Why might that be? I mean, that in a sense gives you the ability to sort of regain that contemplative state that you lose in the environment of social media. How long have you been doing that? I've been writing journals on and off since I was 19. Sometimes they're uh, in the form of narrative, sometimes they're extremely matter of fact. The one where I, when I, I do when I travel, I've only done maybe the last four or five times over the last maybe three or four years or something mm. like that. And then recently, I just spent three months in Paris and I did, I did one every day. And because it was such a long time to be over there, it ended up being something like fifty thousand words. <laughs> Whoa! Something. It's so big that I can't bring myself to edit it. <laughs> I can't even bring myself to read it. Mm. But I know it's always there. I can reference it. I know exactly where I was sitting when the Notre Dame like caught fire, uh. which happened to be a hundred meters down the road. And, I, and I, it was the end of that day. And I remember writing about what the scene was like on the street and how I felt and all that sort of stuff. And, and I noticed that, you know, a couple of weeks later, you kind of forget all of these tiny little details and then you go back and revisit it. And as soon as you revisit what you've written, all of these minor details come flooding back to you. Mm. I found this diary after I, I got sick and I, I, after I got out of hospital and I started to write it one night. I used to work at a pub in Balmain. This is before I got sick. And um, 
I was a waiter there and I used to finish uh, work at about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And then I'd go down to the bar and have a drink. And there was this guy who used to come in at about 11 o'clock. He used to work for ABC radio and he would come down and polish off a bottle of Shiraz every single night, like clockwork. And I'd sometimes sit with him and have a drink and have a chat. Uh, he was quite interesting, met a lot of interesting people working in radio and things like that. And, uh, one thing that he said to me one night was, you know, always keep a journal because you never know when it will come in handy. You never know when you'll find it and, you know, read back on it and all that sort of stuff. And so I decided to start writing it that night. And actually the opening line of that journal was uh, describing him walking off into the distance and what he told me to do. So anyway, I, I wrote that journal probably for a couple of weeks before I lost interest in it or whatever, you know, you do when you're 19. And then I found it years later and this was after I'd been through hospital. And, and what had happened was because I'd gone through like, I mean, I guess what you would call trauma, you lose a lot of memory, particularly in the months leading up to when something happens. And for the life of me, I couldn't tell you what my day-to-day -day life was like leading up to that until I discovered this diary. And then it had everything that I'd done every single day, everything I thought about every uni lecture or somebody that was pissing me off that day or I missed the bus or whatever it was, just all, all this stupid little shit. And, and not only was it kind of trivial and useless, but interesting, it, off, it, it offered an insight to what I thought about everything, how I wrote, how poor my grammar was at the time, all sorts of things like that. You know what I mean? It was, it was extremely useful. So it would have been useful at the time and it was useful in retrospect. And so now I, I try and make a habit of writing whenever I can. Mm. Mm. What were you studying? Uh, at that time I was studying uh, Bachelor of Science in Psychology at Sydney Uni. Right. Yeah. So you were a, a curious guy trying to figure out how the world worked. Trying to find um, out the, the yeah, building blocks uh, of everything. I, I, God, I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't remember what my intention was when studying that. I, I know I used to read a lot of philosophy and psychology, a bit of, you know, Carl Jung and a lot of Nietzsche. And so I thought that it was something that would interest me at the time. And everything else was kind of people would study as a means to a job. And uh, there was really no job at the time that I... Uh, strived for mm. and so I thought well if I'm not doing something for the end result to be some sort of a career I may as well do something that yeah. at least keeps me there how old were you when you got sick it was 10, uh, ten days after my 19th birthday actually yeah, yeah. and the, it's it's strange so the incubation period for meningococcal is 7 to 10 days or something like that so I'm pretty sure I contracted it on my birthday on my 19th birthday what were you doing that night I don't know just went out with friends bars yeah. I think I went I think I went to the bar that I worked at uh -huh. for drinks because you know as a student you don't have too much money so you get the freebies from the place you work yeah yeah I mean it's a useless piece of information people often ask me do you know where you contracted meningococcal I said no do you know where you contracted your last flu who gives a shit you know yeah you are where you are deal yeah. with it yeah yeah when did you know something was up I knew something was well I mean it's difficult to answer so uh, the day before I was admitted to hospital, that's when I started to feel sick. And it was just flu-like symptoms and things like that. Started off fairly innocuously and then it sort of progressed you know, quite rapidly into what one may describe as the worst flu you've ever had in your life, like that kind of thing. If you can imagine that, complete with holding cold and hot sweats and vomiting and I couldn't walk, <laughs> things like that. Were you living with people? No, I was living on my own. I lived in... Uh, 
in Balmain at the time, just a little one-bedroom apartment. And I was lucky because by virtue of the fact that I did li- live on my own, there was there was no one really to monitor me, but I had informed my stepsister that I was feeling pretty bad and she'd offered to take me to a doctor. And I said, look, I'll just, I'll let, I'll let you know. And yeah, luckily the next morning I woke up feeling like I'd been hit by a bus. And so I texted her and I said, look, you know, maybe I should go and see a doctor. Because I mean, I was a 19 year old boy and as everyone knows, they're invincible, right? Like no, nothing completely impervious to any sickness ever. And so um, I sort of held out as long as I could until the point where I felt I was literally dying. Turns out I was. <laughs> <laughs> Who's ever right about that when they say it? I mean, everyone's so hyperbolic these days. No. She came over the next morning straight from uni and just took a look at me and said, look, you're going to hospital. You're not going to a doctor. And I obviously thought that what she What did was, she see? I opened the door and I had obviously contracted a disease that made, I had purple rash all over my face and hands. So that's what meningococcal presents as in its very late stages, like almost when it's too late, then you'll get a purple rash. And uh, my body had also swollen a bit. And um, I, I realized this because when she was on her way over, I tried to put my shoes on to get ready and I couldn't fit my feet in my shoes. And for some reason, I, I, I felt so bad that I wasn't trying, I couldn't register why this was a problem. I'm like, why can't I fit my thing? This never happens. Did I put on weight? Yeah, that, that was, it didn't really click to me. And then I had the purple rash, which I obviously couldn't see because I hadn't looked in the mirror. And then that was it. She's like, look, you're going to a hospital. Luckily, there was one up the road. And so she took me in there. And then I was initially slightly alarmed for the first time at the speed with which people started to see me in the hospital because normally when you go into an emergency ward don't know if you've ever been it's kind of like sit there we'll be with you in four to six hours yeah are you bleeding Um, from the head yeah exactly no (laughs) have a seat yeah exactly yeah or even if you are sometimes like the, the receptionist looked at me and she was like right get in that wheelchair straight through to a room they started ripping my clothes off me sticking needles into me all this sort of stuff felt like a human pin cushion so that was the first time I kind of raised my own eyebrows. I was like, all right, what's going on here? This must be something serious. And they, they immediately transferred me to RPA, that was Balmain Hospital, because they, they were ill-equipped to deal with something like that. And that was the stint of what would become a year and a half in various hospitals, just living in hospitals, which was horrible at times, entertaining in others but a complete abstraction from reality Mm. in almost every sense of the word. I mean, it's a period of my life where music came out that I've never heard before. (laughs) Like things, I think there's two things that I remember from being in hospital. One was September 11, because I was uh, laying on my back when that happened and I was watching it live because I couldn't sleep. I was in so much pain. And the other one was uh, Whenever, Wherever by Shakira. (laughs) For some reason, that fucking song was everywhere. And it really pissed me off because it was just, I don't know, that song just annoys me. And it's just, it's relentless, you know? And so you'd hear like a radio off in the distance Mm. with with Shakira, like grunting. And I was like, oh, fuck me. I'd rather be in an operation right now. (laughs) I think by the time you're in an ambulance from the smaller tier three hospital, and I know Mm. the kind of hospital you're talking about. Mm. I was in one in Brisbane recently. It's like... If you chop your finger off chainsawing in the backyard on a weekend, that's where you go. Mm. If you get infected while that, they go, 
off you go to the other place. We can't heal. You know, it's yeah. like it's one up from the medical clinic. It's, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. you can stay overnight. We'll put a drip in you. Yeah, yeah. But there's no major surgery happening here. We'll look after you. Yeah. We'll we have you. one surgeon. He's on annual yeah. leave right now. Yeah, and yeah. He's not but, that good you know, anyway. You don't want him. It's we'll we'll look we'll look after you if you've if you've yeah. had a fall and broken something. We can plaster you up. Yeah. But anything that requires any kind of complications, you're out of here. So you, you, you can almost. Uh, this is probably completely incorrect, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I'm sure you can tell those hospitals just by the architecture. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Like you just look at it. Yeah. And like there's nothing. If I'm dying, that's not the place no, to go. I won't stay here. You mentioned how rapidly you started seeing different people. So then you, you and your stepsister are in an ambulance going somewhere else? Yeah. Well, they just put me in an ambulance and yeah. they, they put me in an ambulance with a guy who's the paramedic sort of – but I don't know. I, I, I couldn't discern whether he was there to actually keep an eye on me or whether he was there just to sort of like moral support or something because mm. he are wasn't people really – Are people in hazmat suits at this point? No, not uh-huh. yet. But that did happen. Fuck. Yeah, like almost hazmat. Like – yeah. What do you call it? Scrubs, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Not so, like ET, but, but close. <laughs> but I'm guessing, like, if you're presenting with this really frightening thing and you've got yeah. symptoms that are, uh, they're aware enough to know, like, we have to deal with this super fucking fast. Yeah. I don't think they knew. I think they knew it was serious and they couldn't handle it. I'm not sure they had diagnosed it as meningococcal at, just yet. At what point did you kind of touch base with the, I'm the senior professor of virology? Uh, oh, yeah. The- <laughs> Well, not that guy. I was apparently lucid when I arrived at RPA, although I don't remember it. And I was having conversations with people, namely the doctor who was trying to diagnose me, I think, or had succeeded at least in diagnosing me. And I think he he said to me, I only know this because I actually ran into him years later outside a hospital. He came up to me and he's like, do you remember me? And I was like, no. I'm like, did you used to go to Starfuckers? You look pretty old for that. Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no, he was like, no, I'm the, I'm the guy, I'm the doctor when you, when you came in. And I was like, oh, okay. So he told, he told me that I, I was lucid when I was in there and that he had asked me whether he could use a drug that was in clinical trials, but it wasn't approved yet. And it was called activated protein C and they had to fly it over from New Zealand or something like that. And I just said, yeah, like just do whatever, just whatever makes me live, just do that. Do that thing you do where you make people live because that's what doctors do, right? And that was when I lost consciousness completely and I was in a coma for a couple of weeks after that and that was it. Right. Boom. For folks who don't know how meningococcal affects your body, yeah. what, what, is it, what does it essentially do to you? Funnily enough, I'm not a really good person to ask about this. You're better to ask a doctor. But to my understanding, it pretty much... It's a disease which results in septicemia, which is a blood poisoning. And the septicemia is what really kicks off. And then that causes gangrene. And then the gangrene you've got to get rid of or it completely kills a limb because it goes to your extremities first. So I went to my fingers, my toes, and then the more they would try and save it, it would creep up my feet. And then it's like, okay, listen, we've got to cut these things off before they kill you pretty much. Um, But the disease itself doesn't really last that long a couple of weeks but it's just what it leaves you with it it destroys tissue and i think i lost the use of one kidney and half my liver and yeah. all sorts of crap so it's not just you know the the ex- yeah, it affects your organs as well the yeah. external it's internal cognitive any issues there no no cog- no there's there are a few strains and apparently i have heard that other strains can affect your brain but not the one i had i had c which is the septicemia and that's purely 
um, the physiology of your body. So yeah. once you get rid of the septicemia, your body isn't septic anymore uh-huh. and you chopped off a few limbs here and there just to make sure that's the way it goes and you fix up, obviously, because it's not just that, right? You've got scars all over your body, so you've got to... They're all open wounds, like on my back, everything like that, so you have to have skin grafts where, where they take skin from good areas of your body, whatever's left, and they shave off a really tiny bit and then they put it on the bad part and then it regrows. And then eventually your liver and kidneys kick back in because, you know, they're good like that. They regenerate. Uh, and, then, um, yeah. and then, yeah, that's, and then you're back to normal pretty much. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've only seen people come out of comas in the movies. Yeah. I'm guessing that's not what happens. Well, me too. I mean, well, I came out. I'm talking to you. So. Yeah, but it's not like a, <gasps> you oh. married somebody else? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, I wish I thought to say that. <laughs> imagine, imagine if I was like witty enough at that point to just, oh, to give a days of our lives line to whoever. <laughs> I can't believe you left me for him. <laughs> yeah. No, look, it's, it's actually a very much a gradual process because you sort of, being in a coma is, you know, as boring as it is to say, it's very much like being asleep for a couple of weeks. There's nothing deep about it. It's just a really long sleep. You do dream in it. I remember dreams that I had when I was in a coma. And then when you come out of the coma, you sort of gradually become lucid over a longer period of time. Now, I can't say what that time is because I wasn't lucid enough to measure it. But if I had to make an estimate, it would be 24 to 48 hours you sort of start to wake up a little bit I remember sort of hearing before I could see I could hear people talking about me and I I wasn't very good at discerning exactly what they were saying it was quite muffled but I could tell by the tone of their voice whether they were talking to me or about me there's a fantastic sort of axiom that like this when you become disabled people uh not everyone some people talk to you like you're a five-year-old <laughs> like, can you hear me hello <laughs> like i'm a fucking amputee i'm retarded it's funny like it's i i, I kind of love but that i would get that constantly from people I, I could hear the muffled tones you know of just like is it okay if we do this okay all right okay fine and then there would be like a muffled tone it was like I'd be like, oh, they're talking about me. Mm-hmm. Maybe I die tomorrow. <laughs> so that happened for a while. And then I remember 
hearing my mother's voice because that's something you recognize, you know, quite well. And so that's when I knew something wasn't right because why am I not able to see and hear properly and there's people around me talking to me and about me and now my mother's here. (laughs) Something must be wrong. I'm either in hospital or prison, one of the two. (laughs) I'm not sure which is more preferable. And then eventually you start opening your eyes and then you see things and, and you try to ascertain the meaning of your surroundings. And it all happens so gradually that you, you look back on it and you never know when it dawned on you that you were in the situation you were. So, yeah, I don't know. Comas are overrated. People... <laughs> They, I've, just never, I've just never heard anyone describe what it's like to come out of one before. Yeah. And that, that seems to me like it makes sense. Like if you are in a coma, you're, and this is not an induced coma, this is mm. your body going, all right, if we're going to keep living, we don't need this consciousness shit. Mm. We're going to yeah, shut yeah. down everything that, like vital functions only. <laughs> That's right, yeah. I mean, it, it's weird. Well, I've never really, I never really thought about other people, other people, everyone might have a different experience. Those of us who've been in comas, yeah, uh, that's a strange thing to say. Um, it's an exclusive club, mate. It probably is, yeah. yeah. I should find other people that have been in coma. How do you, what do you even Google for that? I don't know, just put on a festival, it's comas not, only, comas only, call it comatose, <laughs> back from the dead. <laughs> DJ Hooky. Yeah, oh, they, they, yeah, washed up career back from the dead. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I know a few bands we could get. Um, so while you're in a coma, do you know now in hindsight you would obviously been told, but do you know what was happening while you were in a coma? Do you know what was happening to you? Did I know what was happening while I was no, in a coma? No, 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 no. After, afterwards. What happened? You know, how did they break when you come out of a coma? Do you discover that they've amputated things already? Do you discover you, oh, I'm in grave danger? What happens? I see what you mean. Uh, they hadn't actually amputated any of my limbs while I was in a coma. How long were you out for? Uh, about two and a half weeks. Oh, that's a long thereabouts. time. Thereabouts, yeah. yeah. They'd actually enacted a phaseotomy on me, which is, um, I think that's why they induced a coma. It's, um, I was telling you before, my body was swelling up and they, they cut down your arms, like you, they cut your arms open and legs open to give it somewhere to swell. Far out. Yeah. And you don't want to be awake for that, probably. <laughs> you probably... Oh, no. Yeah. No. So I think that's sort of the general purpose of it. But that they were doing everything they could to try to save the arms and legs, obviously. But as time went on, you know, it became increasingly evident that that wasn't going to happen. So, yeah, you do learn things gradually. The other thing to note is that you know, when you wake up in intensive care, you're on heaps of drugs, like a ridiculous amount of morphine, fentanyl, I had ketamine, and you know what that's like. Um, Thankfully, but- no, I don't think I do. <laughs> I don't think I do. I might have accidentally, you know. Yeah, you may- <laughs> I don't time, know. That time you were in a coma? No. Um, no. <laughs> but, um, yeah, look, it's, it's a cocktail mm. of ridiculous drugs. So, so I think to some extent you do accept things. Like, I do remember when a doctor said to me, like, oh, you, your legs have to go. And I remember not being too perturbed about it. I was kind of like, yeah, all right, whatever you got to do, let's do it. I remember being a bit in the dark about, I didn't know anything about amputees. I mean, I knew there were amputees, but I didn't really know how they got around, whether it was possible to walk with prosthetic legs if you had two legs amputated or, you know, it's just a world that I just wasn't au fait with. 
And so I had a lot of questions. And obviously when you're in hospital, everybody's, you know, medical staff are usually pretty optimistic and positive with you. You learn later in retrospect that they're a lot more positive than they probably should have been. And they're like, yeah, it's fine. You walk with prosthetic legs. Heaps of people do it, you know. And I was like, okay, fine. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's take them off. Let's go. Um, are you looking at your feet under the blanket going, yeah, I can see why that's got to go? I didn't. I, no, because I couldn't see them because it was they were covered. Mm. But I think they covered them from me because I would maybe freak out if I saw them because they were black. Yeah, gangrene is not a pretty thing. Yeah, it's not very good. Yeah. It's, no. not, it's not something you put on your Tinder profile. No. No, God, no. No, but it, it's like the it's fucking something that the treatment in the, from the Boer War, but it's like yeah. that is how you save somebody. That's true. That's, it's got to go. It is, because yeah. Because yeah. like, we tried leaving it. doesn't work. And Eventually scurvy, we'll take you out. It as well? Like pirates. Like there's, there's so many, you know, margin, <laughs> like so many similarities to the pirate life for me. Isn't there? Dark. Hooks, gangrene, <laughs> rum. Rush. Actually, I don't drink rum. It's <laughs> we'll get you a parrot and an eye patch. Yeah. Mark my words. Let's do it. <laughs> I, the eye, eye patch, I'm fine. The parrot, I'll have to feed it and it'll smell. I'm not doing that. doesn't have to be a real parrot. We'll get you a robo parrot. Okay. Deal. Can you imagine getting a robo parrot? <laughs> What's just, a robo parrot? I just agreed to it because you said robo parrot. Well... Because as you know, you see the Wait the, the, the caricature. I'm making this up as I go. You see that, but I'm just thinking right now. Yeah. Here's a business opportunity. There's the caricature of the pirate with a parrot on the shoulder, and yeah. the parrot parrot goes pieces of you know, it just repeats yeah. things that it hears. I see what you mean. As someone who sometimes has difficulty remembering things, mm. I want a robo parrot. Mm. Like instead of wearing a Google Glass that mm. freaks people out, no, I've just got a robotic parrot that's got yeah. um, some sort of gyroscope in it, so it constantly maintains balance on my shoulder as I lean forward and I walk see. around and things. And you can, but it sees yeah. and hears everything. All right. Oh, it sees. It sees and hears everything. And then I go, who is that person? And he goes, you met them in 1902. Oh, thank you. There you go. Great. Oh, so you, know, you met them in 1902. Or whatever. 1982, <laughs> I meant to say. It's either a really bad parrot or you're really old. 1982. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so the parrot can then serve as my off-board memory. All right. Yeah. The parrot could be Siri. I don't mind that. It would have to have some sort of an artificial intelligence, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it couldn't just be like a notepad on your shoulder. No, you'd be like, hey, can you wake me up in 10 minutes? You got it. And then you yeah. go have a nap. Does it go everywhere with you? Fuck yeah. Does it go to the toilet with you? My phone does. Why doesn't my parrot? <laughs> because the parrot's recording everything. <laughs> so it's my phone. Could be used against you so one day. my phone. Come on, let's be honest. I can see a Black Mirror episode in this. <laughs> Get Charlie Brooker on the phone. parrot. Get the phone. Extorts money from me. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, it's happening. Yeah. Uh, so I'm guessing in, in these times when you are, you're in ICU for a quite a while, like mm. weeks, if not months, you're in there. Yeah, I was in ICU, yeah, for about six weeks, I think, yeah. Yeah. You're going to start knowing who's who, like the amount of people that you were out partying with on your 19th birthday. Mm. It can be, some for some folks, it's like, oh, my fuck, I'm out. I'm out. I'm just, you know, I will, oh, it's I too, see confront, yeah, it's too yeah. confronting. You're going to know who's who mm. by the people that come to see you, right? Yeah, you, you do. But, I mean, at the same time, I do have a lot of friends that I've always been close with and I still regard them as great friends who didn't see me as much in hospital and I know that's more a reflection of them, their personalities. I had to understand that it was very difficult for some people to visit me in hospital. It wasn't a case of... You know, they couldn't fit it into their schedule or something like that. I think most of the people, you know, I had a couple of friends who were there every single day, every single day for 
in almost the entire 18 months, which is a ridiculously onerous yeah. thing. And obviously my family was as well. But I had some friends that maybe once a month or once every few months or something like that, I didn't necessarily hold it against them or anything like that. So, I, I, yeah, it's... I think life does a really good job of sorting out friends for you. I don't think you need an event like this to do it. You, you need to sort of give people a bit of the benefit of the doubt in a way and, and their actions aren't always about you. In fact, their actions are rarely about you. They're more about them, you know. Yeah, you could, I just had to be conscious of that, I guess. I remember being 19. I remember it's not hard to tell because of the career path I chose, mm. but uh, physical vanity was a massive part mm. of my life when I was 19. Yeah. I had really long hair. I had suddenly lost all this weight. I mm. was, you know... I was 70 kilos, 75 kilos, I think, for the first time since I was 12 or something. Right. You know, and, and suddenly people were like, oh, who's this guy? You know, and yeah. I was just obsessed with it at 19. Right. And I know that, if, you know, for, if you're 19 and you're suddenly, oh, I'm a man now. You mm. know, I'm, I've got this physical power. Like your, your appearance is quite an important part of, of who you are. Mm. Do you recall kind of the first time you saw a mirror uh, in mm. hospital? Yeah, you know what? I actually do. What I don't remember is what I thought about it, unfortunately. But I do remember somebody holding a mirror up to my face. I remember them being reluctant because I asked. At the time, it was, you know, much worse than now because I had a tube coming out of my mouth that had created a, a sort of gap in my lip. I had black marks all over my face. I'd lost the cartilage, as you can see, in my nose and ears. But it, was, it looked much worse, pretty much. Yeah, it, it was pretty bad. But I don't remember how I felt about it. Again, I was on a lot of drugs as well. Mm. Kind of, and I, I probably looked at it and I was like, well, okay, that sucks. How do we fix this, you know? I don't think I ever remember getting depressed about it or anything like that. It was more of a motivator of, you know, how do I get out of here and how do I fix this all up? I think I remember, because one of my... One of my doctors at the time was a plastic surgeon and I remember him talking to me and saying you know if you ever want to you know fix up some things on your face you know your cartilage and things like this you know come and see me I'll do it for you and I remember thinking that that was something I might do in the future and then I remember making the decision when I got out to leave it because um, I don't know whether it was just that I'd gotten used to it and it was my face now and you know how you kind of get used to that but also, at least in the initial stages, it was a reminder of what had happened to me when I looked in the mirror, you know? And there's value in that, for sure. What value are you talking about? Well, I mean, it's like a battle scar, right? You'll never forget. You'll never forget. Losing feet, I can't imagine, but I get... Oh, it's fine. Well, I get you see enough people... You see enough buildings with ramps. You see yeah. enough, you know, toilets everywhere in the world. We are very lucky to live in a country, pretty unfortunately, only since the seventies. But we are lucky to live in a country that is uh, oh man, yeah, ad this adaptive. Straight streets ahead of almost everywhere. My in the word, world. Yeah, my yeah. word. And that's one thing. But to start to lose, and it was, 
Yumi Steins, who I'm sure you know, mm. who taught me so much about photography, and she always said, as often as you can, get people's hands in the photograph because people's mm. hands convey emotion almost as much as their face does. Right. Um, That's interesting. And, and, and an exp- the way that people express themselves with their yeah. hands. Not only that, just the very dexterous nature of what it is to be human, mm. uh, the opposable thumb is the yeah. thing that combined with our brain is the thing that helped us change the face of yeah, this planet. separated the men from the boys. Really it? did change <laughs> the face of this planet. When it comes to contemplating losing your hands, mm. what was that conversation like? For me, the first thing I thought about was uh, music because I used to be a guitarist. That was my primary concern. The secondary concern was generally speaking, how debilitating it was if I didn't know anything about below um, lower limb prosthesis or amputees, I had less of an idea about people who'd lost hands or arms. So it was ju- it just threw me into a pool of doubt, you know what I mean, in the deep end. And so, yeah, you had the, I think the, the music part of it was, was the depressing part. And then the, the the functionality part was just the kicker. You know what I mean? Like, how are you going to get around? And, and at that time, I remember people had been inundating me with resources on, you know, electric hands and how far prosthetics have come. It's the same fucking conversation every five years. Someone, you know, comes up to you that, oh, I saw this thing on the television and the Japanese have developed something that's quite sophisticated. I'm so, no one's using that, okay? It costs a quarter of a million dollars. It's in trial testing phases and it's, I can probably do more with my hooks than you can with that electronic hand, right? Get rid of it. And so I was kind of sold this propaganda of like, you know, oh, you'll just be like this bionic man. And that in a way kind of, you know, satiated my doubt as to how I would live independently one day. I didn't doubt that I would. I just didn't know how. But then again, I kind of liked not knowing how I'll end up doing something and just try to do it because it's never about the end. It's always about the journey. You know what I mean? And I think if I know what the journey is, it would be boring. So I didn't mind that all too much. It, It was at the point that I decided that I had to learn how to play guitar again with my hooks. That was going to get me over the how upset I was about not being able to play music. It's just making the decision that I'm going to I'm going to work that out one way or another. You know, it's you, you need to f- I always find that uh I like to have something to look forward to in my head, whether it be something that I really want to do one day or something I want to achieve or some place I want to go or whatever it is. I like to have something to look forward to. And I think what I did in my own head when I, when I was in that position of losing my arms was I, I decided that I wanted to work out a way to play guitar. I did, had no fucking idea how I was going to do that, but I knew that I was going to give it a shot. And that gave me enough hope to be like, all right, let's get this show on the road, you know? Hope is a really important thing. Mm. It is. I think it is. Yeah. And just even though you, and you mentioned you really... It, I really relate to that in my in my experience, having no idea how I was going to get better mm. when I got really sick, but knowing that, well, other people have either like gotten sober or you know other people have been through mm. psychosis and now they're okay. Mm. So that can happen to me. Mm. I have no fucking clue, and I I want to believe that I can't because my head's telling me that'll never happen, but I can see it is. Mm. So I'm just going to go. 
I'm just going to keep moving in that direction. That's a really good take home because it. Uh, I, so, sometimes I've had, well, not sometimes, fucking all the time, I have people that will approach me and say, oh, I never could have gone through what you have. And I think to myself, well, really? Are you sure? Because you haven't really been put in that position yet. I probably would have thought the same thing before. What I'd rather people to say is, or, or to think rather, I should say, is to look at me and think, oh, turns out humans can go through some pretty horrible shit and be fine. <laughs> Maybe I can too. It's so much of a more rational take home from that. And I, I sort of hate it when it's the opposite. I know they're trying to be nice. Like I never could have gone through what you did. It's like, dude, fuck off. Sure you can. Shut up. <laughs> You're on the Christmas card list of, you know, that many occupational therapists and, you know, know that sort of thing. I'm sure you, you know, you kept a lot of people employed for quite a long time. And yeah, yeah, probably. You know, we have an extraordinary healthcare system here that... Yeah, we do. Would have helped you in many ways learn to live as a quadruple amputee Mm. independently and getting you towards that goal. Yeah. What's the first week at home like? Uh, Independently at home? Let me think. How old were you? Uh, I was 21 or just before I was 21. After I moved out of hospital, I lived with my mother for about six months just while I was still ironing out the creases of becoming independent, being able to do things for myself. As soon as I was by myself in a house, I just exponentially got better at doing things because... All of a sudden, if something was a little bit challenging, I could have before said to someone, oh, can you scrap that for me or can you do it? But if you're in the house on your own, if you're not doing it, it's not happening, you know? It's just like being thrown in the deep end. It's like immersion, you know, when you learn a language. You want to learn a language? Move to the country, you know? Go somewhere that's not the main city and see how you go. That's it. So as soon as I was at home on my own and I had the basics sorted out, little things that I would notice that I would pick up. Like I had this, actually, this is a funny story. I used to smoke. I I didn't know how to light my own cigarette. I couldn't use the lighter because the lighter, uh, you know, like a big lighter, it's quite finicky with a little circle part or whatever it is. It didn't really work with my hook. And so uh, I'd try all different ways of lighting it. Sometimes I'd get someone to light a candle before they left and then I could approach the candle and light it myself. But then the candle would go out. So what do you do when the candle goes out? So I was like, all right, I'm going to use the toaster. So I go to the toaster and I'd put the toaster on Then I'd hold the cigarette in my mouth and I'd put my face really close to the toaster, light the cigarette. And then the toaster broke, right? And I didn't have any money, so I couldn't replace it. <laughs> the stove, and I'd use the stove to do it. And then that wasn't working properly. And so I eventually, the, the, the last thing I've tried, I remember, was rolling up a piece of A4 paper and sticking it under the grill in the oven, but the top part yeah. where the grill was, sorry. And then lighting that on fire, that piece of paper, running out into the backyard, lighting my cigarette and then throwing it on the ground and stamping it out. And one of the times that I was doing that, I threw it on the ground next to the barbecue and the barbecue had a box of matches next to it. I'm like, oh, fucking matches. I could definitely do matches. <laughs> so I just picked up a box of matches and I just immediately struck one. And so I was like, oh, cool. That's it, matches. That's where I sit from now on. So it's, it's funny, like... The solution to problems are sometimes in areas that you didn't even expect them to be and it just <laughs> changes your life. I spent a couple of months doing shit like that. It's 
crazy. I remember, I think, well, the, the first time I met you watching, let's just say, the cigarette's not the most healthy thing for you, mm. but I'm not about to fucking tell you, yeah. hey, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that you've been through all that, yeah. maybe think about, yeah. But I, I just remember watching in fascination the dexterity of which you, because you, uh, you've got a similar version of it today, you, you wear a, a Indiana Jones kind of satchel situation and you had one on you, you were wearing a T-shirt and a pair of jeans and it was back when you could still smoke in clubs and yeah. this must have only been a few months later because it would have been 2004, mm. five or so yeah, when I first five, met you. Yeah. And the dexterity and fluidity that which I saw you pull a pack of ciggies out of this bag, mm. all while talking to me, yeah, yeah. Um, put one in your mouth, light it up and take a couple of drags. I'm like, holy shit, that is some fucking like... 1980 Moscow gymnastics that I've just watched, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the reason I got really good at using hooks was because I have two of them. So some people lose one arm and they'll get a prosthetic, but they'll use their good arm to do everything. And, um, you know, I, I was kind of blessed with losing both. And so I'm sort of forced to learn how to do everything like this and you become quite proficient quite quickly so yeah how did the nightlife thing come about the nightlife thing it was we're talking like pedestrian which people know now is a, is a monolithic media empire it is yeah at the time i remember it, it was just a, that, yeah. a couple of dudes who were putting out like a dvd or something yeah it was um oscar uh do you remember Oscar? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they used to throw parties and they used to get those big, uh, you know, the pedestrians walk this way sign. Yeah. They'd bring that down and like, it was very grassroots. Like oh, yeah. it wasn't, yeah, yeah. But that's what it started as. That's right. I remember yeah. going to those parties and they were like, oh yeah, man, we just, we made this DVD. It's the second one we've done, you know, yeah. give us five bucks, we'll give it to you. And that was how it began. Yeah. And now it's this colossal yeah. thing that gets brought up in parliament <laughs> 20 years later. Music was obviously a part of you. Mm. Um, is that what led you to it? Look, when I had worked out a way to play the guitar again, I developed this uh, slide system that I could hold with my hooks. Ben Harper style? Yeah. Yeah. Lap steel, I yeah. think. My best friend and I started a band and uh, we started playing around. We played some gigs in Melbourne and in Sydney and we had pretty good success with getting people to gigs in Sydney. We had a pretty decent friends network. I wish we were just as good as actually uh, at playing. I think, what, I, I think I saw you. You might have, yeah. Where did you used to play? What venues? Uh, we played the Hopeton back when it was open. Yeah. And Plan B, do you remember that? That was above the Bourbon. I um, would have seen you at the Hopeton. That's, yeah, the Hopeton That's maybe. where it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Look, I don't really remember a lot from yeah, 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 about... Yeah, it's funny you mentioned um, September 11. I came back from that all PTSD. I was in New York. Mm. Uh, I, got, I was all PTSD'd out. And, uh, yeah, I don't remember much. There's, like, flashes of stuff I remember. Yeah. But, you know, when you say lap steel and like, I remember being at the Hope and standing, I think I might have been with Phil Jamison. Mm. And any time you're out with Phil Jamison, you like – that you remember you were out with Phil, in the, certainly in the early 2000s. Right, okay. If you remember you were out with Phil Jamison. <laughs> yeah, all, yeah. You know, he's, he's very different now. He's your trigger, yeah. <laughs> he's very different now, but boy, howdy. Yeah. Boy, like he was a warrior. Yeah. <laughs> he was just like, like going to battle. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So in the trenches with Phil Jamison and then um, uh, and you're uh, at the Hopeton. Uh, 
yeah, so I think that's might have more senior. So you're playing, you're, you're you're getting people come and see you. You're you're, you're in this band, and hmm. um, how did the nightclub thing come out of that? Oh, um, well, I was actually studying uh, music business management at the time, and I had to go out and find some work experience as part of the course. And uh, I'd previously had a, a, a decent relationship with some of the club promoters or the entertainment managers of clubs because we'd done gigs there. And so they were the only people that I could think to reach out to. And so I, I reached out to the guy from Candy's apartment and I said, listen, are you looking for anyone uh, to do work experience? I've got to do it as part of my course. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, come in and help us out. And so I worked a few nights a week and that's when the uh, pedestrian thing started at Candy's. And um, that was really early stages. I was doing a lot of the legwork and promotion for the Thursday nights there. And my best friend was DJing as a result as well. And we both, he was just playing sort of rock music and stuff. So it wasn't as much DJing as, as we now know it. It was just sort of like song after song kind of thing. But he was very good at it. Amazing at reading a crowd and all this sort of stuff and would play the right song at the right time and get everyone going. And between the two of us, we had their Thursdays busier than their Saturdays at that time. And we kind of just thought to ourselves, like, maybe we should do this for ourselves and not someone else. You know what I mean? And it would be a great way to sort of position ourselves to be able to play and write music without having to go through the normal channels that people do, making demos and sending them to clubs desperate to attain gigs and things like this. And so we'd sort of loosely decided that we wanted to start something and it was right on the last week of my course. I just uh, finished the course and I got a call from the guy who runs ran Club 77 at the time. And uh, I, I'd known him because I'd spent quite a bit of time down there. We had a friend who ran a night and he just said, oh, you know, so-and-so is leaving on that does the Saturdays there. Do you want to take over? Do you want to do it? And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds like something I'd do. I didn't necessarily think it would be a career, but I thought it sounds like a lot of fun. And it's exactly what Chris and I had planned to get going. And so that was it. Within a week, we were like sitting down, business plan, name, all this sort of stuff, created the idea for this party. And, you know, 13 years later, it was still running weekly. It was crazy. It just, you know, something that you didn't think would have lasted a couple of months completely changed the course of both of our lives. I love the way, though, that if you back time it, how it came to be. Mm. You know, it was you doing something that you loved for free, Mm. working your balls off Mm. for free, meeting people. You know, when you're playing an original music in Australia at that stage of a career, you don't make any money at all. No, You're losing yeah. money, hand over yeah, fist, just travelling, gigs, whatever, lost time at work. But relationships that you made along the way were the things that you were top of mind. Of course, yeah. I mean, relationships are everything. Relationships are everything. Yeah, yeah. Everything else is just noise, really. <laughs> it, 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 but, and maintaining relationships mm. and, and nurturing them. Yeah. And, well, I mean, even if you don't, they can have the adverse effect on your life, which is holds just as much weight as if they did something positive for you. So the fact that they're they're at the core of any discourse of your life is probably the more salient point. You know, if you have good relationships with people, yeah, you're probably going to do better. If you have bad relationships with people, you're going to get shafted. <laughs> 
It's, tr- it's, you know, it's not rocket surgery. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, really, it's really true. Yeah. Uh, it's not my line. It's Heggie's line. I steal a lot of shit from him. Uh, <laughs> I saw him the other night. Fuck, he's funny. He's so fucking funny. Yeah. Yeah, he's married to a French woman, speaks fluent French. Oh, right. Uh, cool. He's over there right now. Takes Is he? Kid. Yeah. Is he take, living there or? Yeah, he's, her, her parents live there right in the middle of Paris. There's like, they were like excellent kind of 60s. Mm. Like just imagine if you... Uh, remember where Big Day Out offices used to be in Redfern? I don't think I ever went there. All right. Well, they basically, when it you know was total shitsville, they bought a fuck off, like massive 10,000 square foot warehouse and became their HQ. And it's right behind right. O'Reilly's there on Crown Street. Yeah. So that's what her parents did in the 70s. They bought a place yeah. in the middle of Paris. It's seriously, it's five floors. And it's got a workshop downstairs and it's just gigantic. And like now the neighbourhood around it is just bananas. And do they rent out things or, no, or they, they just, just live on five floors? They live on five. They have the workshop downstairs yeah. and they have their, yeah. it's That's some Marie Antoinette shit, man. Because there's people living in like eight metres squared. <laughs> no, it's, um, I've been to their place. and that, But they bought it when it was just totally run down in the dodgiest, dodgiest, dodgiest of dodgy neighbourhoods, mm. right? And... Um, yeah, there's this Algerian bakery next door and yeah. you know, it's that part of town. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, I like those parts of town What's wild is um, Heggie's onstage persona, he's very – I've known him since I was eight. His onstage mm. persona is very much – very Queensland, you know. Yeah, it's fucking – as I sat on a milk crate the other day eating my piece of bread with some ancient grains on it, you know, he's kind of like really kind of yeah, acerbic yeah. around that. And then when you, when you see him just – snap into completely fluent accentless French you're like what the fuck <laughs> you do that but you know what the thing is you don't know what he sounds like in French because you're not French apparently accentless his really wife tells is me that French. right yeah apparently oh his, his wife tells you oh, yeah, come yeah. on no no and she, oh, she's French she was saying yeah, she she's, <laughs> she's not impartial they protect their um, they protect their language <laughs> uh, so you then come into this life of extraordinary kind of that club promotion and, and building and building and mm. building and building and and at some point you've got to go alright so how can I make this more than just a Saturday what can we do from here what does yeah. it become yeah I don't think we even thought about that for quite a while because there, it was still on the back of our minds that it was a sort of temporary situation much more temporary than it ended up becoming so we, we probably didn't think about how to branch out as much in the in the beginning we were just riding the wave and i'm kind of glad we did because that would have been the best way to enjoy it and it was but we did become djs through that because i mean i i played my first gig on our opening night mainly because we didn't really want to pay anyone else to do it but i didn't know how to dj and so i was just i just learned you know where to press play and where the faders were and what to do and i was like all right let's just do this thing vinyl no, it was at the time it was first, CDs. First CDJ? It was CDs, yeah, yeah. yeah. I scratch vinyl, not in like the sick way. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. It'd be tricky to handle. It is a bit. Um, yeah, no, it was CDs back then, but it was the tiny CD players that were not very sophisticated, but it didn't really matter because the music we're playing wasn't too sophisticated yeah. either. But look, I mean, whenever I DJ, that's the kind of DJing I did. Yeah. It was, I couldn't beat match for shit, but mm. I was okay at going... Uh, okay, you're dancing to this song, yeah. so uh, you'll that one. That's the next one you dance to, yeah. and you were singing along at the moment. So here's another one you can sing to. In all honesty, I, I, that's like ninety percent of DJing. Like somebody who can do that really well but can't mix is going to be more successful than the other way around. Yeah, you know, because nobody cares what you can beat match and beat juggle, and yeah, nobody cares. 
Nobody cares. Right? <laughs> okay, maybe we'll watch like a video of A Track on YouTube when he was like 12 years old, like doing that. And everyone will be like, whoa, that's pretty sick. But nobody cares that you can do a bit of that now, you know? No, they really don't. Maybe. The other thing is as well, DJ, DJing is something, I this is what annoys me. Like, DJing is so easy. Like in the, in the modern context of, of what somebody has to do now to become a DJ, to get up and, and get to the standard that most people who play professionally in clubs are already at, if everybody knew how easy that was, nobody would be impressed by them. And yet they're sort of elevated. And so, you know, people have asked me like, oh, how do you DJ with hooks? I'm like, same way you do with hands. Famously, really, really easily. Press button, move jog wheel, <laughs> move fader, smile at everybody. Pick song correctly. Pick song correctly. Repeat. Repeat. <laughs> Until someone kicks you off. <laughs> there you go. Save your money. Don't go to a big fancy, we'll teach you how to DJ course. Yeah, you just yeah. got it right there. Yeah. From the cynical words of Tom Nash. That's but it's cool. true, man. It's so true. When yeah. I first started playing around with the tractor software and, mm. and, and stuff like that and getting down on myself, like, how could I ever? Because I kind of took it semi-seriously for a time. I played a few gigs. Some of those pedestrian guys, what was his name? Tim. Mm. A bloke called Tim used to give me gigs somewhere in the King's Cross area. I remember going, oh, yeah, this is just, as long as I, you know, I'm using the software, but it's, it's all a bit kind of bells and whistles, really. Mm. All that matters is that the people keep dancing. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that's all that matters. And yeah, and they were doing that before you got the software. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And whether it be a Michael Jackson song or whether it be you get away with playing some Aqua and people will go mm. for it. Yeah, Because, yeah. you know. Dude, people got away with touring Aqua. <laughs> Forget playing it. <laughs> and they did really well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's exciting. So for someone who... You know, and I know what it is to, you know, play guitar and want to play guitar and want to be on stage and want to entertain people and be a part of playing some music. Um, you good? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're good. Um, do you want me to transfer it to the other one? No. All right. Sorry, Tom's just enjoying a, a cup of water that I've... I'll get this one out of the way. Um, to play music on stage mm -hmm. as a guitarist... Mm -hmm. It's a pretty fun thing, and it's a real yeah. it's a real visceral thing. And yeah. you feel you feel good doing it, and, and people dance and yeah, of course, yeah, music you, in any capacity, I guess. Yeah, you make all the faces when you hit the big chords, and it feels good. Do you do that? Oh fuck yeah, my rock faces are excellent. <laughs> I pull shapes like yeah. you know how on the side of a hotel gym, it's got all the moves you can do with the bench, you know, or whatever. You know, it's got the all the, the hotel like gym. the poses, like a yoga pose. I've chart. never been to a gym ever. Okay. Fair enough. Well, <laughs> sorry. Uh, have you ever seen like yoga poses in a picture? Uh, yeah, like in yeah, picture like, form, like a sort of tutorial. Like, do this, do yeah, that, yeah. do this. Do that. Like I've got a chart yeah. of, of rock shapes. You have that? <laughs> oh fuck it, no, in my head. <laughs> like this is what I do when I hit an open E. Yeah. This is the open A. This is my face sort of when fine. I do a bend. <laughs> so yeah, I do all the faces. Yeah. Um, but I know what it feels like to be on to be on stage and that. And, that. Mm. and I'm sure that you know to be. DJing and having a whole dance floor just go with where mm. you're taking them must have been a freaking amazing feeling. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. Like it's – it's you can't really compare it to anything. I don't know what to say about it. It's, there's so much ego in it. It's crazy. Like it's just you, – you can't – I mean people talk about most connection with the crowd and being part of an – oh, God. It's just fun. Like it's just – it's fun. You yeah. just, you know. And, yeah, you are the focal point. I don't necessarily like being 
the focal point, but I really like being responsible for people going crazy. I like that part a lot. Mm. Like, yeah, you don't want people like watching you when you're DJing. That's really awkward. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're like, what do I do now? Because there's really not much to it, is there? You just mix one song in and then like, what are you going to do now? Dance. Yeah. This is why you need I'm not to a good dancer. It. That's the thing. Oh, I'm a terrible dancer. Yeah. Uh, as my kid will tell me all the time. Mm. She's just stop. Her. Yeah. She's great. She's so 15. It's the yeah, best. But she's a dancer. A very good one. Yeah. Okay. So that's not, yeah. you can't be too hurt by that. No, I, I dance like a white man at a wedding. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. my moves. If I told you you're a bad dancer, then you should be offended. Oh, no. I, you know how some people have two left feet? I have no feet. So it's like. <laughs> Like, if I tell you you suck at dancing, then you fucking suck at dancing. <laughs> yeah, but it must be most of all pretty great. Like, you're putting these parties on, people pay their cover charge, you know, going out at a time when you could go out in Sydney. Mm. Um, it's an investment of, like, I've made this money this week doing this job that I kind of don't like, but I'm going to take this $100, $200 or more. Yeah. And I'm going to go out with my friends and I'm going to leave all this money in the club and I'm trusting these people in there that it's going to be worth it. Yeah, yeah. And so they're already going in there and they're like, okay, make it fucking good, buddy. Yeah. And they're ready, you know, so they're yeah, kind yeah, of, they're of, kind of yeah, prime. Yeah. They've put their money in so they they kind of want it to be good. So mm. it, it must be must be great. You, you need, yeah, you, that's extremely important. I think a lot of people that get into sort of any – musical discourse, particularly DJing, because DJing is so autonomous. Um, they can get really carried away with themselves and end up playing extremely esoteric music to people that they just don't enjoy listening to. And, yeah, it, it comes back to exactly what you said. It's like people have paid good money to come and have a good time. Play the fucking hits, yeah. man. Just play the hits. <laughs> just play, you know, but I mean, it doesn't mean you have to play everything commercial. It depends on the place you play. But Of course. You know, there's always the, I mean, if you're good, you should be able to develop a tactic in which you can slip new music that you know is good into things that you know they will like. And then eventually in a couple of weeks, they're going to like the thing you gave to them a few weeks ago. And if you can use that to curate ebbs and flows in a set, that's a good DJ. Not some asshole that mixes perfectly and plays songs, you know, by some bedroom German producer that you've never heard of and never will again. I can't believe you don't know his SoundCloud. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. Not many people know about him. Yeah, it does actually have SoundCloud. It's too commercial. <laughs> I got this on a cassette mailed, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mailed to me. <laughs> some guy actually once told me that he wants to DJ with cassettes. And I was, I you know, you hear a lot, you talk to DJs, fuck, it's bad talking to DJs, they're, like, they're so annoying. And, you know, you'll have people like, oh, yeah, I go play records or I do whatever. There's various sort of levels of hipsterdom within it. One guy once told me he was going to try and DJ with cassettes. I was like, you know what, fuck you. Just fuck you. There's, go, yeah, go play with cassette tapes and see who gives a shit and see how it sounds. <laughs> I don't know why it annoyed me so much. I just knew he was trying to make a point. And I didn't like it. <laughs> oh, my God. God damn, I, I am so on par with it. <laughs> I was, I, I, you know, I understand the navel-gazingness of it mm. all. But at, at some point, I don't know whether it was just the volume of gigs that I went to, experience that I had in nightclubs, working in the commercial end of where the rubber meets the road and that people need to make money, otherwise it's not going to work, mm. working in clubs when I was younger 
and then through the, all the stuff I saw at Channel V and mm. to be honest, a lot of the stuff I saw on Idol mm. of the level of it can't just be kind of good and it can't just be okay. What do you, what do you mean by that? Sorry? Like oh, you, you, the, the level of Yeah, skill. if we saw okay. 10,000 singers. Mm. Like something's going to rise to the top. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, if you, the difference between <laughs> holy shit, mm. you're going to make a top 10 single yeah. and oh, you're a good singer. It's a, oh, chas- yeah, yeah. It's a chasm. It's yeah, a yeah. chasm, all right? And, you know, so my my tolerance for, you know, if you're not really fucking trying mm. fucking hard, now mm. I'm going to go home and go to bed. And you're not <laughs> even allowed to say to them, like, you know, you've got to have that X factor because that's like copyright. That's the other show. Well, no, no, but that's it. But you know, and you would have seen it. And I talk about this all the time. And, you know, you had something when you called up for work experience, yeah. you had something that went, actually, yes, you, mm. won't, mate, you won't waste my time, mm. all right? Ten other people phoned me today. Mm. All right, but I know that you won't waste my time, so mm. you're in. And I'm sure you now, when people call you, you go, actually, yeah, you got something. Mm. Come on in. We'll, yeah. we'll, 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 we'll come and we'll work together. Yeah. There's that thing. You, I, I don't know the name you, of it. Yeah, you, you sort of you can notice, but I mean, you never really want to discourage somebody who who doesn't seem to have that from trying to get it, because I have also seen people that I would never have thought would be successful at things that surprise you and then become really successful. Yeah. I mean, you know, not somebody that you might regard as good, but that work hard enough to get to a level where you're like, really? That's crazy, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, not that I would ever actively discourage anybody anyway, but I mean, not taking a punt on someone or not, or not thinking that they're ever going to be there to get to a particular level people can surprise you, man. Like they come out of nowhere and they do really well. What does work look like for you now? I mean, there's a point where you you really can't just be getting home when the sun's coming up every damn week. No, no, I don't do that. Uh, I mean, I do, but I don't do it as regularly as I did. We stopped doing stuff because there's a weekly party. I think it was April last year. Um, so it's been well over a year now. And so now we do periodic parties and it's it's just the format that fits us better in which we can still remain passionate about doing it. Passionate is probably the wrong word, but still enjoy it, I guess, mm. you know, because it's, it's hard doing something that you love so much and not letting it kill it for you, you know. I think we're at that, we're at that stage where it's, it was starting to become tiring for us, a little bit onerous, and that kind of reflected in our sets a little bit we got a little bit lazy musically and we both noticed it and we're like yeah let's stop doing this before it gets out of hand and let's rethink a format that you know when we do a party now we get really excited to do it we put a lot of effort into do it and so we we're still DJing at least once a month or something like that whether it be a gig or whether we do a party or, or whatever it is but we have time to put more effort into our sets now and then we don't go out the other weekends so we go out and we're like oh there are still nightclubs yeah <laughs> not too many yeah <laughs> but they're still out there for people who aren't from sydney can you describe what's happened here sure yeah because I, i'm constantly having to explain it to the french uh, they don't understand it's if you're not from sydney yeah we've had we've experienced a little bit of a in my opinion a two-pronged issue in Sydney, one of which has been a change in legislation, 
which has meant that for the past few years, uh, nightclubs aren't allowed to accept anyone through the doors after 1.30 in the morning, even clubs that previously had licences until to trade 24 hours or till 6 in the morning that regularly did, and they can't sell drinks after 3. Some of that has been lifted 2 o'clock and 3.30 respectively, but the negative effect that it's had on the actual real estate of the clubs over the last few years makes the negligible change in lockouts basically useless anyway. I mean, most of the clubs have shut down. A lot have been redeveloped. There just aren't as many places and there isn't as much work for DJs, I think. People's fees have noticeably gone down. It also came at a really interesting time economically in Sydney in which the cost of living started getting out of control a bit. The housing market peaked around 2017. And having run a club that is primarily targeted to people between the age of 18 and 23, I've noticed many patterns over the past 13 years or so, mainly in where people live. You know, when we started the club, everyone lived in Surrey Hills and Darlinghurst and things like that. And then all of a sudden... People were coming from the Sutherland Shire and then they were coming from somewhere else and it, we kind of noticed these patterns happening. And, and it's kind of when their parents decided to move out of Sydney to have kids 20 years before that. And so you notice areas of growth where most of the people 18 to 23 live. And for the last sort of five or six years, it's been uh, the Hills area. That's been really popular. And uh, People still live with their parents when they're like in their early 20s. Unheard of when I was 18. You would move straight out of home. You'd either have your own place or you'd live in a share home. People can't afford it these days. They can't go to uni at the same time and live in a share house. And so their their spending is down. Like the, the, the amount of money that they have to go out on the weekends is significantly reduced to what it was 10 years ago. So you couple that with the fact that they have to come to the city and be going home at three o'clock when there's no transport out to where they live and they don't earn that much money per week anyway and it costs them entry and drinks are $20 and all that sort of stuff, they probably just say, yeah, I'm going to stick local and just have beers with friends instead of go to nightclubs. And that is the end of the Sydney nightclub scene. (laughs) And I think for me, culturally, I I I don't drink anymore. I don't go out pretty much at all anymore. Mm. There was a time where I couldn't because if, I just couldn't be around it. Um, yeah, yeah. But now I just don't because I'm, you know, I'm 45. My wife's about to mm. have a kid. Oh, really? so, yeah, uh-huh. a teenage mm. daughter. I would rather watch Grand Designs and go to bed at 10. Mm. Grand Designs is great. <laughs> Grand Designs is a great show. Yeah. And that's fine. But the UK version. Oh, yeah, yeah. you got to have Kevin, Kevin Fucking Kevin. He's amazing. Is this going to be his artistic vision realised or ended for natural ruin. Yeah. Now, I know enough about television, Kevin, to know that you recorded that piece of camera after, after you shot yeah. the reveal. <laughs> so I know it's the second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I always like his, um, I love his closing statement. Yeah, it's the best. It's always like if you weren't inspired by the build before, like now you are. And what I love is when, it, when they hop across the ditch and they just like flawlessly just shoom French. Just oh, he's done. Yeah, I know the the abroad Bucking and Italian as well. Because he lived in uh, he lived in Florence. I think incredible. The guy's anyway. But I wonder 
for folks not from Sydney, the, the lockout stuff was a knee-jerk response to violence. Mm. And in my opinion, a drug and alcohol policy that mm. was not working. Yeah. And, you know, public education and, and public attitudes towards drinking, drunkenness, and just being a fuckwit if you're drunk. Yeah. Personal responsibility of, you know, all this kind of shit. Like it was, mm. for, for me, it was the it was not an effective approach to deal with those problems because those problems still exist and there mm. is still violence and there's still all that shit. It just yeah, doesn't happen in the centre of the city. But I lament and I mourn for the the loss culturally mm. of what we miss by not gathering together 50, 100, 500 people in a room at, you know, 20 different places around the city every week to have those little moments of people who are look around and they see other people dressed like me, other people dancing to a song that's my favourite song, it's your favourite song too. Mm. Hey, that's interesting. Hey, well, let's do something together. Let's meet. Let's be boyfriend, girlfriend. Let's be boyfriend, boyfriend. Let's mm. start a business. Let's go surfing. Let's go ride horses. Let's create art. Let's write a book. Let's create, you know, a startup with parrots on our shoulders. Let's do something. You know, what are we missing by not having that serendipity of getting those people together gives the city a sense of community, mm. all right? Well, I mean, people will always find each other. I don't think you have to worry about that. It just sucks that there aren't any nightclubs. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, man. I mean, it's just, yeah, like it, it's yeah. a bit embarrassing on an international level as well. Yeah. I mean, whenever I have friends come from overseas, you know, there are so many laws and legislations. Oh, I'm just going to go out for a cigarette. Can you just make sure you're four metres away from any... Door? Like, which door? That door? No, any door. Okay. <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? I'm so, when do we have to be out of here by? Like, what's our bedtime? Yeah. It's, you know, piss off. Los Angeles has similar mm. licensing laws. Los Angeles, when I lived yeah. there, Los Angeles, like, you can't get a beer after one. Right. Like, that's it. It's, it's over. Yeah. And it's all about the house parties and it's all about parties. Yes. Yeah. And that's big over there. Massive, yeah. massive. But as you know suddenly emptying a giant club of people onto the street at one in the morning just mm. when everything's starting to get going. Like, that, mm. is, that is a dangerous time it's to be standing out there. It's a disaster, it, yeah. Mate, it is not good. Yeah. It's getting people safely out of a club and home and, or, you know, not fighting over cabs or... Yeah, or moving anybody into an environment that isn't properly forwarded with security is probably the worst thing you could do for a bunch of people on alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know the solution to the problem that inspired these laws, mm. but I don't think the solution they've done now is working. Do you think Australians are more violent culturally when they drink than other cultures, I guess? That's a good question. My answer will be clouded with people going, well, he doesn't drink. So he's biased. Well, you, but you, you did drink once. A lot. Yeah. I was really shocked the first time I went to a country <clears throat> that didn't have the kind of British, New Zealand, Australia kind of binge. Mm. Oh, we're drinking? I'll wear my gumboots. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's going to get messy. Someone's yeah. going to be vomiting. That's yeah, just yeah, how yeah. it goes. This is how it goes. You know, I was really shocked the first time I went to a country that did not have that relationship with alcohol, which is, you know, most of Europe. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I was sitting on the shores of the Mediterranean watching Germany play Turkey in a Euro Cup match. Mm. There must have been, I don't know, there were five bars next to each other. There must have been two, 3,000 people all just sitting on the sand while the people from the bars were just coming down selling beers. Not one fight, 
not one raised. I couldn't speak the language, but you can tell a tone of voice if someone's about to fucking kick off. Of course, yeah. Nothing. Mm. And everyone, when the game was over, everyone got up and walked home and got a cab. And it was like, why can't we do this? Why can't we? Was there food present? Yeah, no. Not at that point, not that time of night. No? No. Mm. There were giant, humongous towers of Carlsberg about nearly a metre high with a a shaft of ice running down the middle and they would they had about 10 pints in them yeah. and they would just come and put them on the sand next to you and you would yeah. just pour your own there you right. go oh, they were, I don't know 80, oh, that's 80 euro each or I don't know 50 euro each I don't know it was a lot of money <laughs> oh, I don't fuck I can't remember yeah. I was drunk but if there was 10 of you you just like I oh, would just have one of those things yeah. and they just kept bringing them out and I just got really sad like why can't we do this why can't mm. we as a nation I think we as a nation need to have a damn hard look at how we are around drinking and how we are around our personal responsibility around what we're like when we drink. Mm. And in that, if we're the kind of person that wants to fight after we've been drinking the OP rum, that's on us. And we might need to consider doing something about that, maybe not doing the OP rum Mm. and maybe understanding that that makes it a shit night for everyone. I mean, I think anybody could could look at themselves that way regardless of what country they're from. But I, I... I just don't understand. Well, first of all, I don't know whether there are per capita more incidents of violence, drinking-related violence in Australia than other countries, but it's just from what I observe, you know, when I, as you said, Europe is a little bit different and I've never been anywhere in Europe where a fight has broken out at a bar ever. And I know that's anecdotal evidence and yeah, wow, that I said that, fantastic. But it would be interesting to read what what that is and I always, Used to, I always used to think it had something to do with the way that people consumed alcohol. You know, when, when you're in Europe and, and people consume alcohol in restaurants, mm. you know, there's no real pub in like France or Spain. No, there's no pub culture. Italy. It's, no. it's kind of like a bar, mm. and they they always serve food with things, mm-hmm. you know, and they'll drink along with food. And I thought maybe it had something to do with that. Probably a good question for Jonathan Hayden. <laughs> when yeah. you take it for coffee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can ask him, man. Yeah. You can ask him. I'll take the dictaphone. Man, I could talk to you for a really long time, but I'm, I'm aware that you've probably got stuff to do. No, I, I won't <laughs> trespass further on your No, no, it's fine, man. Podcasting I'm, I'm, time. I'm, gr- I'm glad that we spoke about the things that we spoke about. Mm. I think that so much of our conversation didn't revolve around what happened to you mm. and is par for the course of what you said earlier is like horrible shit happens to people and mm. guess what they manage yeah that's true and <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and sometimes they don't but you know uh, so what is it that got you to manage uh i don't know can't answer that um i mean what's the alternative what i sit around and feel sorry for myself that's not helping anyone least of all me bad idea or was it easy for you to when those self-pity thoughts kicked in was it easy for you to change course i didn't really have any self-pity thoughts that weren't directly related to being in physical pain i noticed that when i came out of being in physical pain i immediately was absolved of any woe is me feeling Uh, because then it it became a matter of urgency that that i get along with the process of becoming independent and not giving a shit about any of that anymore because that's the only thing that could help me How long have you been married? Uh, since October. Rad. Yeah, just happened. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Is it great? Yeah, I mean, it's the same as before. Like, it's because <laughs> it's we, you know, 
been together for a few years. So it's just, we just had a really cool party. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I've been married before. I'm now married again. Yeah. You're on, you're on your second. You know it's three times lucky, right? That's what my dad says anyway. <laughs> well, right. Well, I, had a, I was in a, a very long-term relationship earlier as well. Yes. So this is, then there's, I'm on three. Yeah. Um, the first one, I, you know, I learned a lot. Mm. You know, I got sober out of it and I was you know, yeah. very, very lucky. And you're happy now? Mate, I'm well, that's so Well, that's so what your lucky. name means in Hebrew, it right? It does. It? That's yeah. correct. I'm so lucky. Mm. I'm so lucky that I found who I found. Mm. And does your wife play any role in you? Getting through the day, just the things. Getting through the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time with her and none of it annoys me. You know, <laughs> you know most people that as much as I like them, you know, I can have enough after a while, but I just, I never have enough. I'm like, she could just be with me all day. It's fine. I could handle it. She's good. There are not many people that can say that about even their their, their significant other. There's yeah. not many people that can go like, I just I just need a minute and a half just to myself. Yeah, just, I, yeah take a little extra time on the toilet. Yeah, just so I can be away, <laughs> and then I can get back in there. Yeah, yeah, no, doing? none of that. It's all right. Yeah, you're the best. Thanks so much for coming around. <laughs> Thanks man. for having me. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Oh man, awesome. I'm just gonna take your photo, all right? Yeah, sure. yeah, cool, cool. That was Tom Nash, also known as DJ Hookie. You can find him on Twitter at DJHOOKIE. He's a fascinating guy. He's a superb human being. And um, if you like what you heard, you can uh, most definitely let him know and find him online and just give him a shout out. Thank you very much to Andy Marr, my audio producer that cut this episode today, and Rachel Barrett for being an incredible human being and helping make 2019 the best ever. Um, thank you as well to Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider, who made the music that you heard today. I'll see you on Wednesday for Dad Pod uh, with Charlie Clawson, and um, I'll be back here on Friday with another check-in. So um, thanks for listening. I hope you stay safe wherever you are. I hope you look after yourself, and I hope you let the people that you've elected uh, in your area know that it's time to stop fucking around and they need some serious climate mitigation management policy and they need it now um, because, yeah, otherwise uh, they don't deserve your vote and you should vote for someone who does. So that's it. Um, I hope you have a great week, whatever you're doing. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 